The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. This is the last Sunday of 2020. The nightmare ends next Sunday. I hope. Hey, we are so glad you're worshiping with us here this morning. I'm one of your pastors, and and today we're in that unique week in the preaching calendar. When I was a youth pastor, this was the International Youth Pastor Preach Sunday around the country because everybody took vacation between Christmas and New Year's, and I always got settled with the task of of preaching. But I'm I'm really glad you're here today, and I'm looking forward to sharing with you what, what the Lord has put on my heart. But before I jump into that, I just hope you had a wonderful Christmas. I've had a chance to interact with a couple of you uh, walking through the front doors this morning. And like Aaron said, I hope it was a joyous Christmas. This was our first Oregon Christmas. And we, as a family, it was just the six of us hanging out in our, in our home, and it was, it was awesome. It was chill. We were going to go sledding at Mount Ashland, but evidently there was like gale force winds on top of the mountain, so we just stung out in our home. And I came to realize this year that I'm, that I'm truly becoming an old man. I was so stoked about my gifts. I got a flannel shirt. So excited about that. Got some hiking boots. I was bummed I didn't get wool socks. And I, I didn't get the, the, the TV remote with the large buttons because of my eyesight. So I'm not that old just yet. But I was excited about My son got me a, an aluminum ice axe for climbing Mount McLaughlin this winter. Anyone want to join me climbing Mount McLaughlin in the wintertime? No. Thinking about it. Thinking about it. It would be fun. Uh, Christmas Eve services were awesome, too. For those of you that came out to that, I just had so much fun. We had a little cozy Christmas Eve courtyard out there with fires and hay bales, and it was just, it was a wonderful night. It was, it, was, it was really great to see you guys and just to celebrate Christmas Eve together with our faith family. You know, the reality is here at Heritage, since I, be- I got here two months ago, a lot has been going on. A lot. My, my first Sunday, uh, actually standing on the stage, was November 1st. And so it's been two months, and in that time, we've wrapped up a sermon series on the seven letters to the churches of Revelation. We, we started a new sermon series in Genesis. I've been, I've been installed as the new lead pastor. We paused our sermon series in Genesis to, to jump into an Advent series. We've had a couple of Christmas Eve services. We've had to adjust to a freeze that the governor put in place so that we can only meet 25 people at a, at a time in a certain location. It's been sort of a hectic two months, and if that weren't enough, in the middle of all all of it, we, 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 we encourage you to jump into a 40-day journey of prayer and devotion. Some of you have and some of you haven't. Some of you might not even know what I'm talking about. But if you go to our website, you're going to see the very first banner. It's going to say, Join the Journey. And about four or five weeks ago, as everything was spinning out of control, as the governor handed down this order to freeze in place, I thought, you know, it would be so easy for us just to get curmudgeon and get angry and just sort of hold our breath and wait to be the church until all this stuff is finished. Or, I, I began thinking, maybe this is a God-appointed time for us to, to really lean into who God has called us to be as his church, specifically Heritage Christian Fellowship in the Rogue Valley for such a time as this. And so, me and the staff, we wrote some devotions that centered around the five core values that are the distinctives of Heritage Christian Fellowship. And we invited you to join the journey. Now, some of you have and some of you haven't. It's not too late. Honestly, if this is the first you're hearing of this, I would encourage you to go to our website, and you'll see a banner at the top that says Join the Journey. You can click on that, and all the resources are available. There's a devotion uh, for each of our core values. There's a blog that highlights each of the core values we stand upon. We have five core values that have been the centerpiece of who we are as a church since we started. We are a church that believes in gospel centrality. We believe that the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is centered to all that we do. 
We're a church that believes that we are to lead God's people into authentic worship, giving back our lives to God as an act of gratitude. We're a church that believes in, in, in right doctrine and biblical interpretation. We hold the word of God in very, very, very high regard around here. We want to teach God's word to God's people. We believe in the commission to make disciples who make disciples who make disciples who make disciples, leading the people of God to maturity. And we believe that we ought to have a missional focus in our valley and around the world. Those are the five core values that mark the distinctives of Heritage Christian Fellowship. We've been on this journey, along with about 40 other things, for the last four or five weeks. My hope today, in this bizarre little week between Christmas and New Year's, was to take a few moments for us to settle into these core values, and specifically for us to settle into the core value of missional focus. What does it mean that we, as God's church, ought to have a missional focus? Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 28? We're going to be in the last three verses of Matthew's gospel, the Great Commission. This is the Great Commission of Jesus Christ to his church. It was a commission to those 11 disciples who gathered on that hillside in Galilee 2,000 years ago, and it's the commission to those of us that gather in a gymnasium in Medford, Oregon today. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18. And Jesus came, and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Would you pray with me? Oh God, as we study your word this morning, as we look at this oft-quoted, well-known passage in the Gospel of Matthew, God, would you let it fall upon our hearts and our minds and our eyes and in our ears afresh. God, maybe not just say, oh yeah, I, I know this verse, and skip over it and think about what's going to happen after church, but God, would you speak to us through this great commission today? God, would you stir up within your church, within your people, a desire a desire and a hunger and a thirst to be obedient to this missional calling you've placed upon your church. God, meet us in this place today. Have your way with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, many of you know bits and pieces of my story. I've been trying to share little bits and pieces because I don't have an opportunity to get to know you one-on-one -on -one as much as I would like. I would love to, to just come over and have coffee with each and every person of Heritage, but I haven't had the opportunity just yet. Maybe after COVID, we'll, we'll get around to having coffee with everybody. But most of you probably know that I grew up in Montana. I grew up in, in the western part of Montana, right on the Montana-Idaho border in the Bitterroot Valley, south of Missoula, Montana. My backyard my whole childhood was the Bitterroot Mountain Range. And the Bitterroot Selway Wilderness Area was our playground. I would look at my backyard and I would see these nine to 10,000 foot snow-capped peaks that just covered the landscape behind my house. I didn't even pay attention to it because it was so normal to me. And when I became a teenager, I just wanted to get away from there. I wanted to outrun the, the, the legacy of my family. I didn't want anyone to know who I was. I wanted to reinvent myself. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. And so I had a chance to play some football after high school. And I got offers from a couple different colleges around the country to go play football. And I chose the college that was offering me a scholarship that was the furthest away for the express purpose of getting as far away from the Bitterroot Valley as I could possibly get. I didn't want anybody to know who I was. I wanted to reinvent myself and start over, and so I headed, e I headed east. And I'd never really been in the Midwest, and I remember going into Billings, Montana, and driving up out of Billings, Montana, heading east towards the Dakotas, and man, was it flat. 
I'm like, what in the world? I hate this. And uh, I got to North Dakota. I lived there five years, went to college out there. And, you know, the people were nice, but it was so flat in North Dakota. I had a buddy tell me one time, North Dakota is so flat, you can watch your dog run away for a week. It is so flat. And, and when it snows, it snows sideways. The snow drifts are as high as trees and houses. The people were great. But I remember coming home the first time. I had been gone in the flat upper Midwest for the plains for, for several months. And I, I came back to have Christmas or something with my family. And I crested this little hill, and I was heading down on the Bitterroot Valley, and the Bitterroot Mountain Range, it was my backyard for, for 18 years, just came into view, these stunning, glistening, snow-capped, rugged peaks, and I thought, how in the world did I grow up in the shadow of those mountains for 18 years and not just fall on my knees and wonder at their beauty every single day? I made a decision in my heart that I would never take the mountains for granted from that point on. I'd forgotten how beautiful they were. I needed to see them anew. I needed to behold their beauty, and I admonished myself to never take it for granted again. I needed to be reminded of beauty. I think of the church, and sometimes how when we've been a part of the church, in the church, around the church for many, many years, I think sometimes we can do the same thing. I think sometimes we can forget the beauty of the church. I know I've been in that place multiple times in the course of my Christian life. We get frustrated with leadership. Our faith grows a bit stagnant. We, we get distracted by the things of the world. Someone says something, especially someone in leadership that hurts us or wounds us. We get bored and we wander and we drift. We walk away, we harden our hearts, we forget the beauty. We forget that the church is heaven's outpost on earth. We forget that the church of Christ is the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the family of God. We forget that the church is the household of God, the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth, the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. We need sometimes to be reminded that as Christians, we, according to Paul in Ephesians 2, that we are no longer strangers and aliens, but we are fellow citizens and the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Sometimes we need to be reminded of the beauty of the church. We need to see the church anew. We need to behold her beauty. She is the bride of Christ. We need to admonish ourselves to never take her for granted again. Let me remind you today of the beauty of the church. Let me remind you today of the beauty of, of this church, of Heritage Christian Fellowship. I want to do that today by reminding you of, of who we are as a church and what are the biblical convictions, the core values that, that guide us, that inform the way we put our hand to the work that God would have us. Gospel centrality, right doctrine and biblical interpretation, discipleship and authentic worship and missional focus. God in his grace has blessed this church with a tremendous body. I mean, tremendous men and women who have amazing wisdom and gifts and talents, abilities, resources, love, concern, care, compassion. This church is filled with tremendous, tremendous beauty. Leadership that is godly, who I can submit to, who we can submit to and walk in accordance with. Our church is a beautiful church, and he's placed us in the midst of the Rogue Valley. I drive down McAndrews because I live up on McAndrews and every single time I drive down McAndrews my, my neck is kinked to the left if I'm going down or kinked to the right if I'm going up because I'm just looking at the mountains. And I tell my kids, I've already told them 400 times and they're already tired of it. Hey guys, look at the mountains. They're like, yeah dad, they're the same yesterday. Same exact mountains. I'm like, yeah, but they're beautiful. Look at the way the sun's hitting the mountains today. 
And I, I was hiking around uh, Roxy Ann yesterday, and I was looking down at the Rogue Valley, and I was looking at Medford and Talent and Oregon. I was looking up at Central Point and Eagle Point, and I was just looking, looking down at Ashland, and I was just thinking, man, 200,000-plus people in this valley. 200,000-plus people. How many of those people know Jesus? How many of those people have the hope of the gospel? I thought of those people that live up in my neighborhood and what I've been calling my kid Snob Knob, where all the, the nice houses are. I rent. Uh, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I'm looking at just all these places, and I'm just thinking of all the people. I'm, I was looking at the green belt yesterday and some tents that were alongside the green belt. I'm thinking of those folks. I'm thinking of the elderly and the young and the rich and the poor. And, and I was walking around my office yesterday, and I was just looking out the window of my office, so thankful, just so thankful that I get to be a part of this church, so thankful that I get to live in this valley, so thankful that I get to partner with you for this season, for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel. This church is beautiful. As we overview our core values today, I just want us to simply settle into the value of missional focus. What does it mean that we have a missional focus as a church? That's why we've chosen the text that we've chosen, Matthew 28, the Great Commission of Christ. It's in these final three verses of Matthew's gospel that, that we, we see the, the, the impetus or the thrust or the, the, the strength or the force behind the mission of the church. As we settle into Christ's Great Commission to his church, we're going to see this theme that's in all of Matthew, uh, of king and his kingdom. And as we look at the last three verses, all of these themes that, that really begin in Matthew chapter 1, that are woven throughout the whole gospel, in, in chapter 28, in these last three verses, it's like the gospel author of Matthew, it's like he draws it all together, and he wraps a giant ribbon and bow around this entire package, and we begin to see exactly what Matthew wants us to see. Look again with me at these verses. Let's read them again. Beginning in verse 18, I want to read them again. Jesus came and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Did you notice all of the all commands in those three sentences? All authority, all nations, all that I have commanded. He'll be with you always. One theologian, a guy by the name of Douglas O'Donnell, summarizes the Great Commission in one sentence. Here's what he says. Jesus has all authority so that all nations might obey all that he has commanded. The entire book of Matthew lays out this argument about the authority of King Jesus. And all of it supports ultimately his authority that we see in these last three verses. Matthew's been laying it out since chapter 1. He begins with the genealogy. Uh, in the genealogy, we see these names that are mentioned. And then finally, in verse 17 of chapter 1 of Matthew, we read that all generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from, Abraham, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So he lays out all of the, the genealogy that leads to Christ, and we see these three names here in verse 17 that are really significant names. We talked about this in our Advent series. We see the name of Abraham, we see the name of David, and we see the name of Christ. Why are these three names so important? Why are the names Abraham and David so important to, to Jesus as king? Well, do you remember Jesus, or what God said to Abraham in, in Genesis chapter 12 when he established this covenant with him? He said to Abraham, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. 
And in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is a forward-looking covenant that was going to be fulfilled in Jesus. He said to Abraham in Genesis 17 that I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And what does Paul, the Apostle Paul, as he's looking back at Abraham in light of the gospel, what does Paul say about Jesus and Abraham? Here's what he says in Galatians 3.8. Paul writes, Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. And so in Christ, we see the fulfillment of this promise that was given to Abraham. But what about What about David? David was this king of Israel. We see in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as God is establishing his covenant with Abraham that God says, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever. Before me your throne shall be established forever. So David didn't live forever, so his throne would be established forever. Who's going to sit on that throne? Well, when the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary in Luke chapter 1, he makes it really clear that Jesus is this Davidic-like king who will sit on the throne forever. Listen to what the angel says to Mary in the Christmas proclamation to her. He says, Behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and, he shall, and you shall call his name Jesus. Luke 1, now starting in verse 32. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him a throne like his father David, the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And so the genealogy beginning in chapter 1 of Matthew begins to point us to how Christ is the fulfillment and the answer to these covenants. It all culminates in Christ's kingdom that has been made sure forever. All the families of the earth are blessed through Jesus according to the promise to Abraham. And Jesus Christ is king forever. He is the fulfillment of these covenants. And even even as you move further into Matthew, we see later in chapter 1, the text that we even studied for our Christmas Eve service as the angel speaking to Joseph the adoptive father of Jesus, it makes it very clear that Jesus is the conceived child of the Holy Spirit. He's divine. We see that Jesus was the Savior, that Jesus was the promised one of God from Isaiah chapter 7, that Jesus was God and that he is God with us. And as the Magi go to worship him as they're looking for the king of the Jews, they understand that Herod wasn't king, that Caesar Augustus wasn't king. Only Jesus is a king worthy to be worshipped. And all this leads us up to, then we see these themes woven throughout the Sermon on the Mount and other parts of Jesus' ministry. And by the time we get to Matthew chapter 28, the final chapter of Matthew's gospel, if there was any doubt that Jesus was this promised Messiah king, it's erased when Jesus defeats death. He comes back to life. He authenticates exactly who he said he was. He appears to hundreds. The resurrection verified that Jesus was the promised Messiah King. He is the Savior who blessed the families of the earth. And so all that just sets up our text as as, as we hear the teaching of Christ, the commissioning of Christ on a mountain in Galilee. He is speaking as this long-awaited King, this ultimate King, the only one to whom all authority belongs. All of it undergirds these last three verses of Matthew's gospel. All authority, Jesus says, has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now Jesus, he, he, after his resurrection, we know from other places in the scriptures that he walked around for 40 days. 
he, he, he ate with his disciples, he conversed with his disciples, he taught his disciples. Uh, and for whatever reason, in Matthew's gospel, the only teaching of Christ, the only words of Christ that we have after his resurrection are these three sentences, the Great Commission. And this is all that Matthew chose to preserve for us in his gospel. We can go to other gospels and get other things that Jesus did after his resurrection. But in, in Matthew's gospel, we simply have these commissioning words of Christ on a mountain in Galilee. And if we think about the mission of the church, if we think about why are we here? Like, why do we do this? Why do we gather in a building on a Sunday morning? Why, why do we enter into each other's lives? Why, why do we seek to know more about God? Why do we sit under the preached word? Why do we seek to grow into maturity? What does God desire of us? What are our marching orders? Why are we here? The Great Commission is foundational. When I think of what it means to have a missional focus, we have to think through the lens of the Great Commission. In the devotions that you'll have this week, for those of you that are participating in the 40 days uh, that we're journeying together with, I wrote a devotion on the Great Commission. And here's what I said. Oh, rather, sorry. That's in another part of my sermon. This is what we say about our missional focus in our statement on our website, in our founding documents, as we define what it means for us to be a church of missional focus. Here's how we've worded that as a church. We believe that Christians have not arrived but have been sent. We believe that the Scriptures clearly mandate that the church exists as a kingdom outpost, working as ministers of reconciliation for the king, who will one day redeem all things and overturn all the effects of the fall. This means that as followers of Christ, we're putting our hand to missional focus. This means that we partner with Christ in this work today, seeking to bring justice and hope to our city. We do not believe that missional focus is optional. Foundational to being the church is to have a missional focus. King Jesus has commissioned us. Again, to borrow from Theologian Douglas O'Donnell, Jesus has all authority so that all nations might obey all that he has commanded. Look back at verse 18 with me, if you would. Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Notice that the text doesn't just say Jesus said. It says that Jesus came and said to them. The NASB translates that as Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying... There's this long preamble before Jesus begins to speak these words to them. Listen to what I read this week from R.T. France, another theologian I appreciate. R.T. France writes, He came to them, spoke to them, and said... This rather fulsome introductory clause not only emphasizes the climactic role of this speech, but also responds to the disciples' hesitation. Jesus coming to his frightened disciples is an act of reassurance. He reassures them. And then he speaks to them to restore the broken relationship. And the words he will now utter will leave any of their failures far behind, swallowed up in their much greater reality of the mission to which they are now called. The disciples themselves speak no words in the final scene in Matthew's gospel. The full focus is on Jesus himself. The role of the disciple is to listen, to understand, and to obey. All authority has been given to me, Jesus says. All authority in heaven and on earth. So if you're a note taker, I'd encourage you to write this down. I'm going to make four observations from the Great Commission today. Here's the first thing I want you to write down. Jesus has all authority. Just simply write this down. Jesus has all authority. If you want to underline, circle, highlight, exclamation point, all, he has all authority. This idea of God's promised one having all authority or, or dominion is an Old Testament concept that we see in Daniel 
chapter 7 is, is Daniel, the prophet, is speaking about this, the, the son of man who will have dominion in, in, Ma- in Daniel 7.14. Here's, here's the prophecy written, you know, like some 600 years before Jesus. Here's what Daniel says about Jesus. To him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all peoples, nations, languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. You know, Jesus referred to himself in Matthew's gospel more than 30 times as the Son of Man. It's a favorite title that he gave himself. He put himself as the fulfillment of Daniel's prophecy in chapter 7. Jesus says, all authority belongs to me, which is another way of saying, I have dominion over all things, all authority. Jesus is the Son of Man in Daniel's prophecy. And in this verse, verse 14, there are echoes uh, throughout the Great Commission, not just here in the first sentence. But then Jesus goes beyond the words of of Daniel. When you read Daniel's words, it seems like it's an earthly dominion, but Jesus says that all authority on heaven, on heaven and earth belongs to him. I mean, only a sovereign claim, king claims to have ultimate authority. And only the king of the universe can claim to have ultimate authority, not just over the earth, but over the heavens and the earth. Here at the conclusion of Matthew's gospel, we find the culmination of this kingship of Jesus. He is the fulfillment of this Davidic royal genealogy. We're seeing fully the true nature of King Jesus here. Listen to what one theologian says. The kingship of Christ stands far above local politics, extends far beyond the people of Israel. It is the universal kingship of the Son of Man which has emerged as the distinctive feature of Matthew's gospel in the way in which he presents Jesus. This is a unique aspect to Matthew's gospel, Christ as the king of the heavenly kingdom. And as sovereign Messiah king, our, our Jesus has 100% authority over all things. And when someone with 100% authority says do something, uh, there's endless weight behind his command to do something. It's not a suggestion. He has commanded. It reminds me when I was a kid and my dad would tell me to do something. My dad, I love my dad, terrifying man. My dad was a logger for 39 years in Montana. Carried a, he's a faller. Carried a chance up and down mountains his whole life. My dad's arms were like tree trunks. My dad had a quick temper. And he was a good man. He loved us. He even would, he was tender. He would, he would say affirming things. He would kiss us and cuddle with us. He was present in my life. But you did not want to make my father angry or disappoint my dad. I lived my entire life. Never once in my life did I roll my eyes at my father. Did I even sigh at my dad. I never so much as, 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 like said, boo to my father. I was terrified of this man. Still am, actually. I remember when I was about 14 years old, my dad took me in the backyard. He was, he was, he was working out of town, and he was going to be gone for the week. And he took me in our backyard. Maybe I was 13. And he had got all this lumber for a privacy fence in our backyard. And he walked me in the backyard, and he said, okay, Paul, here's what I want you to do. And he showed me how to dig, you know, dig post holes here every eight feet and put the stringers up this way, and here's how I want you to follow it. I want you to go this far, like two feet down or three feet down, or whatever it was. And, he, and, the, and I'm like, okay. And, not, and he's like, and when I come back uh, this week, I want, I want this to be done. I was like, what? Like, I was just a kid. Like, I didn't know what I was doing. But there was something about my dad vesting authority in me that was, like, super empowering. And he said to do it, and I didn't want to disappoint him. And so I, I, I had blisters. I was, I mean, in, Mont- in, the rock, in Montana, in the Bitterroot Valley, it's just all gravel. So it's rock after rock after rock. But I toiled and toiled and toiled. And when my dad came home that next Friday, he came to the house. I was proud. I was excited. I thought I did a good job. My hands were covered in blisters. And he walked me in the backyard. And, 
and he showed me what I did, and he's kind of quietly and, you know, without much fanfare, put his massive paw on my shoulder. Good job, son. And then he bought me a milkshake. It was awesome. <laughs> when my dad asked me to do something, it, it carried tremendous weight because my dad had, not only did he have, like, positional authority, my dad had, he was just terrifying. He had, he had authority in every sense of the word in my life. It's good for me to remember that Jesus has all authority. It's good for us to remember that our, our, our Christ is the authoritative king. Jesus has authority over all things in my life. Jesus has authority over all things at Heritage Christian Fellowship. He has authority over our budget. He has authority over our pastors, over our staff, our leadership, our body, our vision, our plans, our hopes, our everything. I am a man under authority. You and I, we together are people under authority. We're a church under authority. And King Jesus has commissioned us. Hear that. He hasn't suggested anything. He has commissioned us. It's not optional. Our missional focus is in response to the authoritative command of Christ. Verse 19. What's his commission? He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. This little sentence is so much, is packed with so much of the mission of the church. There's so much in this word go. Just go this idea of, of getting up and, and leaving comfort. We are, we are to go to love the world as God loves the world. We're not to sit on our hands. We're to go where he sends us. We're to ask God to give us his eyes and give us his spirit that we might be his hands and feet to the world around us. We are his body to the world. This divine king has chosen to use us. Not angels. Human beings. Flawed as we may be. Disciples. He... He has chosen us, his church, to be his hands and feet, to be his outpost on earth. The mission of those who go is to make disciples. Here's the second thing I would encourage you to write down. Disciples go and make disciples of all nations. Disciples go and make disciples of all nations. This is the duty of a disciple, is to go and make disciples. If I was to ask you, what's a disciple? You might say, well, someone who knows a lot of stuff about, about Jesus. A disciple is someone who studies Scripture. A disciple is someone who can articulate the gospel. But I think inherent in the definition of disciple is one who makes disciples. You're not a disciple unless you're putting your hand to making other disciples. You might be a convert. You might be a student. You might be a student of the Word. You might be curious. But unless you're putting your hand to the work of disciple-making, you are not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Inherent in the title disciple is this understanding that to be a disciple, we must also be making disciples. One theologian says this, the commission is expressed not in terms of the means to proclaim the good news, but to the end. The commission is to make disciples. It's not enough that the nations hear the message, they must also respond with the same wholehearted commitment which was required of those who became disciples of Jesus during his ministry. Disciples of King Jesus are to go out with the gospel. They are to proclaim the gospel to others. There is no limitation to who we are to share this good news with. As people come to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ, as they come to believe and respond to the gospel in faith, we are then making disciples. And though the whole process of going and making disciples is it's a, it's an exercise in the gospel, it's centered on the gospel. The gospel isn't only the center of mission, it's the center of the life of the believer. And that's why the first core value we hold as a church is gospel centrality. 
the, the strength, the force, the substance of mission is the gospel. Our core value of gospel centrality is woven into missional focus. The power of our going, the, the power behind our proclaiming, the power upon which we make disciples, the hope of the nations is the gospel. And let's not forget that we are to go to all nations. It's a very well-known word, ethne or ethnos. Every tribe, every nation, every people group. This isn't nation as in like the nation of Germany and the nation of Paraguay. This is like every people group on the face of the earth. We're to go to all peoples. I remember when I was planting my church in Milwaukee as I was praying about whether or not I would go. I, I drove down to Milwaukee and I didn't want to live in the city. I didn't want to be down there. I'm not, I'm not a city guy. In my previous church that I was working at at the time, we were very involved in cross-cultural mission. I was doing lots of work in North Africa and in Caracas, Venezuela and to an, uh, a, a, a Native American tribe in northern uh, Minnesota, um, the, the Boys Fort Ojibwa. And so we were involved in three areas and I was doing a lot of cross-cultural mission. But in my estimation, to do cross-cultural mission it, it, up to that point in my life, it pretty much involved me getting on an airplane or a bus. And as I was praying about if God was going to lead my family and I to, to Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I, I was down uh, outside this old dilapidated building that would eventually become our sanctuary. And I was sitting in an old folding lawn chair. And I was just asking the Lord, like, God, are you moving my family and I to the city of Milwaukee, Wisconsin? And I was looking at the cars of people driving by. And, and I was startled, but not startled, but like, I was like, oh. Because inside the cars that were driving by the location of our church, there were more non-white faces than white faces. And it just hit me. For some reason, this had never hit me before. I thought, ah, in the city, God has assembled the nations. And cross-cultural mission doesn't mean getting on a bus or an airplane. It's walking across the street to my neighbor. It was awesome. (laughs) I was like, this is amazing. And so we moved down there and we began to do work and I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I grew up in Montana. You know, it's like it's not the most culturally diverse place on the planet. Uh, I lived in Wapaka, Wisconsin, not the most culturally diverse place on the planet. And when I moved to Milwaukee, I didn't know what I was doing, but I was excited about what God was going to do when he started to gather the nations. And we had our first service and that's who showed up. Every tribe, tongue, language, and people group who happened to live in the city of Milwaukee and I was clueless. And so what I began to do is I began to ask people from my church who were not white to sit down with me. We had some people from our church that had immigrated. They, they were among immigrants. We had people in our church that were from, from Mexico and, and, and Puerto Rico. We had people in our church that, had, that, that we had African Americans from, from all over the country who didn't know where their ultimate lineage came from. They just knew that they were a part of the African American community. And, and they were all a part of our church. And we would sit down. And I didn't know. I, did, I was dumb and I was ignorant. And we would break bread. And I would just say, let's just talk about Jesus. Let's talk about the gospel. Let's figure out how to do church together. Let's figure out how to, to, to love one another and reach our city for Jesus. And it was challenging and it was hard. But it was beautiful. The church is composed of all people. It's a beautifully diverse collection of people. Rich and poor. White collar and blue collar. Dignitaries and the destitute. The elderly and the young. And the church is global. Did you know that over 60% of the church worldwide is in the southern hemisphere? Think of the, listen, to this, listen to the list of the top 10 nations where the church is growing fastest in the world today. None are in Europe and none are in North America. Iran is the fastest growing church in the world is in Iran right now. Afghanistan, Gambia, Cambodia, Greenland, Algeria, Somalia, Mongolia, Kuwait, Tajikistan. The church, in fact, isn't really thriving in America right now. It's not thriving in Oregon. Which means sometimes going means staying. 
God might be stirring in some of your hearts to go. God might be calling up missionaries right here, right now to leave the comfort of central or southern Oregon and, and to go to uh, an unreached people's group outside of your, of your comfort zone. And that's awesome. And if that's the case, let's talk, let's pray, let's see what that looks like. My guess is a lot of you have been called to stay, to walk across the street, to engage your neighbor. The new going is staying in Oregon. Do you know Oregon is one of the least church states in the Union? The Northwest is one of the, the least church regions in the country? Do you know there are hundreds of thousands of people in our valley who do not know Jesus? We don't have to go far. King Jesus has commanded us. As disciples, we are to go and make disciples of all people. It's not optional. It's a commission. It's not a suggestion. Going out on mission for Christ is the epitome of missional focus. And what does disciple-making look like? Well, look with me, if you would, at the end of verse 19 and into verse 20. Jesus says, Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. After the command to make disciples, Jesus spells out the process of disciple-making. After belief in Christ, new disciples are made through baptism and teaching. These sent disciples, and the ones who go, are to be the ones baptizing and teaching the new disciples. Here's the third thing I would encourage you to write down. Disciple-making happens by baptizing and teaching. Disciple-making happens by baptizing and teaching. The disciples' task was to reproduce themselves by going, by baptizing, and by teaching. Upon conversion, baptism serves as this public signal of identification with King Jesus and his kingdom. Baptism is a symbol of what the gospel has done for the believer. You know this for those of you that have been baptized. They have died to self. The old self has been buried with Christ. Baptism symbolizes this. They have risen to new life in Christ, washed of their sin by the blood of the cross. Baptism symbolizes this. They have been born again and now live as members of the family of God. Baptism symbolizes this. Here's how Paul puts it in Romans 6, verses 3 through 4. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Baptism is this outward symbol of this inward thing that is going on, this converting work that God is doing, this, this commitment that we're making. Now, here is where I wrote about this in the devotions that's going to come up this week if though, for those of you that are participating in the 40-day journey. This is what I wrote about the Great Commission. Jesus instructs the church toward two tasks, baptizing and teaching. The order of these foundational elements of discipleship matter. Baptism precedes instruction. The person who is baptized is obediently engaging in the ordinance of baptism as an outward symbol of an internal work that God has graciously done on their behalf. The washing clean of sin, the forgiveness of God, this new birth in Christ did not come through human obedience to teachings, but through faith in our faithful God. Only God transforms hearts and it is the transformed heart that yearns to seek after God, observing all that he has commanded. This is not done by means to earn God's favor, favor, but as a joyful act of worship to God who has already freely given his love. 
These new disciples of Jesus are to observe all that he has commanded. They're to obey. They're to follow. Up to this point in Matthew's narrative, it's been Jesus who has done all the teaching, but here it is the disciples that are to do the teaching. And it, it, this is a fundamental shift after the resurrection of Christ. Now it is the disciples who are ambassadors of Christ who are to go out and teach. But even so, their duty of teaching derives the authority of the risen Lord I read this week. These disciples don't have to develop their own discipleship curriculum. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to teach these new disciples what Christ has already said, the commandments of Christ. To be disciples is to obey Jesus' teaching. Very simple. Discipleship is at the core of missional focus. We're not called to make converts or students, but disciples who follow Jesus, who then go and make disciples. That's what we're called to do. Our core value of discipleship as a church is woven into this missional focus. When you consider the discipleship or the disciple-making requirements of teaching people to observe and obey and to follow the commands of Christ, we can begin to see how central Scripture is to our disciple-making. We now, as followers of Christ, in the era and time in which we live, we have the apostolic word that contains the commands of Christ that God has given to us. When we teach disciples to observe all that Christ has commanded, we teach them from this holy book. The commands of Christ are contained therein. You can begin to see how central right interpretation and right doctrine is to the church. Our core value of right doctrine and biblical interpretation is woven into missional focus. Listen, church, King Jesus has commanded us. Disciples go and make disciples of all nations. Disciple-making happens through baptism and teaching. This is not optional. It's a commission, not a suggestion. This is at the heart of missional focus. And finally, look with me at the last few verses, or the last few words, words in verse 20. Jesus says, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What's the end of the age? Well, that's marked with the return of Christ. So we're not there yet, which means he's with us. Because he said he'd be with us to the end of the age, and he'll be with us after the end of the age as well. Jesus is with his disciples. If you were here on Christmas Eve, we looked at the teaching uh, of Isaiah 7.14 where Jesus was Emmanuel, God with us. God is with us. Matthew's gospel highlights in verse 1 or chapter 1 that Christ is God with us and then Jesus himself affirms that he's with us here in the Great Commission. In fact, if you look back at verse 16 of, the, of chapter 28, we, we read that there's just 11 disciples that are present on the mountain that day minus Judas uh, there's probably others that are there as well, but regardless, it's an intimate group. And So how do we know that Jesus isn't just commissioning these 11 disciples that are present? Well, because he says, I'll be with you to the very end of the age. It's inherent in his commission that this is for all believers of all time until, his re until he returns. And so here's the last thing I want you to write down. All disciples are assured of Christ's presence always. All disciples are assured of Christ's presence always. We don't go it alone. We don't go on our own strength. To give yourself fully to the mission of God is to dedicate your breath and your resources and your passion and your time to going, therefore, and making disciples of all nations, to baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, to teaching them to observe all that God has commanded. I think to give yourself fully to the missional focus is to say, I'm going to worship God with my very life. I'm going to live out this great commission as, a, as, a, as an outflow of worship. Our core value of authentic worship is woven into this missional focus. We go to those who don't know Jesus because we want to see them worship. 
John Piper has famously said that missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship doesn't. Church, King Jesus has commissioned us. Disciples are to go and make disciples of all nations. Disciple-making happens through baptizing and teaching. This is not optional. This is the commission of Christ. It's not a suggestion. This is a missional focus. But guess what? We don't go it alone. All disciples are assured of Christ's presence always. And when we begin to think about who we are as a church, we begin to think about these core values. These aren't just things that we write on the whiteboard and put in our print material and, and say because they're buzzworthy or they're pithy. Like these, these core values are stated because they're to be woven into who we are as individuals and as a church. We are to be a church that is on mission for Christ in a gospel-centered way. We are to be a church that is on mission for Christ who holds tightly to right doctrine and biblical interpretation. We are to be on mission for Christ and committed to discipleship, to raising up disciples who make disciples who make disciples. To be on mission for Christ is to engage in authentic worship and invite others to join us in worshiping the King of Kings. To be on mission for Christ is what it means to have a missional focus. I want to be a part of a church that lives this out. I am not interested in playing church. I'm just not. Not interested in punching the time card when I show up on Sunday, sitting under good teaching and going on with my life unaffected and unchanged. Don't want to do it. I've been tempted to do it. Don't want to do it. I hope you don't want to do it. I remember when I first clicked on the Heritage Christian Fellowship website. I was living in Milwaukee. I sensed God stirring in my life. I sensed that he wanted to make a change for me and my family. The mountains were calling my name. And I clicked on this website after passing over it a few times. And I clicked on beliefs. And those five core values popped up. Gospel centrality, authentic worship, right doctrine and biblical interpretation, discipleship, missional focus. And my heart sung. I said, yes, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. I want to be a part of a church that doesn't play church but absolutely is the church. Heritage Christian Fellowship is heaven's outpost in southern Oregon. Heritage Christian Fellowship is the bride of Christ in the Rogue Valley. We are the family of God, the body of Christ. Heritage Christian Fellowship is the household of God in Medford and beyond. We are the church of the living God. We are a pillar and a buttress of the truth. We are the dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Would you consider what it would look like for you to be a part of what God is doing in our church. There's some of you that I've met here that have just been coming for a couple of weeks. Would you consider, as we figure out what this looks like for us moving forward, would you consider saying, I'm in? Would you consider getting off your hands, getting on your feet, and joining me and others as we seek to be the church of Christ in the Rogue Valley and beyond? Would you join me in this work? Would you invite others to join you as we join together for this work, for the glory of God? Let's pray. Father, I'm so thankful for the men and women you've gathered at Heritage Christian Fellowship. Thankful for the clear marching orders you have given us as Heritage Christian Fellowship, but you have given the church. God, may we be a body of believers who goes, therefore, and makes disciples of all nations 
God who, who baptizes them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, who teaches them to observe all that you have commanded, God. And may we go as men and women who are under your authority, assured of your presence always, every step of the way. God, would you stir up in our lives, for those of us that have grown a bit stagnant or bored or sidetracked or have drifted, God, would you stir up up in us just a deep affection for you? God, would the the command to go just by by the conviction of your Holy Spirit, God, would it just pierce our souls today, God? When we leave this church and we drive down Biddle and we go back to our homes, God, would you give us eyes to not just look past the men and women on the sidewalks or in the stores or in the parks or in their homes or in our workplaces or our schools, but God, would you give us eyes to see people as you see people? God, would you raise up the resources, the time and the talent and the, the gifting and the treasure and all that, that we need as your church to be obedient to this commission, God. Not for our glory, not for the advancement of Heritage Christian Fellowship, but for your glory and for the advancement of your kingdom. Have your way with our church. In Jesus' name we pray.